Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Welcome to another entertaining and informative episode. Join Eva Segaloff, Craig Underhill and Hans Prennan as they chat through the latest papers this week. We've unique quick bites, Twitter accounts to watch out for and a practice tip of the week. There's a few laughs too. So join us for the most relaxed and amusing oncology podcast out there. Reach out to us on Twitter using hashtag OJC. As ever, you'll find links to all of the papers, bios and Twitter handles in the notes on our website. For regular news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. How are you, Craig? Yeah, good things, Eva. Really, as usual, this is a lot of work putting this together, but I'm loving doing it. And it's great some of the nice feedback we've been getting from people and inspires us really to push on and talk about some more interesting papers. And thanks thanks for everyone who has sent us feedback and, and suggestions. Absolutely. And how are you? Hey, how's your hand, hands? Oh, my God, is that a sling or something? What have you got on that, hands? Oh, you poor thing. It's sort of like a brace. Oh, It's actually a brace, and I can tell you a funny story about this because it's actually some kind of plastic, and it's a big plastic, and they put in some heated bath, and it's 65 degrees, and then it starts melting. And this way, they can put it around your arm, and when it's, again, less warm, so it's become colder, it becomes more stiff. And actually, the girl that made it was... I think almost one hour busy with this thing to make it. It's not that fantastic. It's just a thing of plastic. But I was shocked when I saw the price of this plastic thing, 200 euros for this kind of plastic. So I think I I chose the wrong business. Yeah, that's right. But you sound enthusiastic about it. Maybe you should have been an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I learned so much now about orthopedics. Good on you. So Eva, I hope you're well and surviving the lockdown in Melbourne and tell us your main paper. Yeah, lots of time to to read papers in lockdown. Not really. You'd think we would do more reading, but there's more uh, more Netflix and reading. No, this is a recent publication from the New England, MRI Targeted or Standard Biopsy in Prostate Cancer Screening. And it's a paper out of Sweden, the STHLM3 MRI trial. So we can talk all we like about relatively modest gains in treatment in metastatic disease, but screening and prevention is really something that as practicing oncologists, we probably don't pay enough attention to. It's not really in our brief, but it's worth knowing this literature. So, as we know, there's a high rates of overdiagnosis when you screen people with a men with traditional methods of screening for prostate cancer. So this is a population-based non-inferiority trial of men 50 to 74 years of age invited by male if they had a PSA level of 3 nanograms per mil or higher. They were randomly assigned in a two to three ratio to either the standard biopsy group 
or to undergo an MRI. And then if the MRI results suggested prostate cancer, they got a targeted and a standard biopsy. And the primary outcome was a proportion of men in the intention to treat population in whom a clinically significant cancer with a defined as Gleason score of seven or more was diagnosed. And the key secondary outcome was the detection of what was called a clinically insignificant cancer. So they had 12,750 men who enrolled, and of those, around 1,500 had a PSA level of three nanograms per mil or higher. In the intention to treat analysis, clinically significant cancer was diagnosed in 21% of men in the experimental biopsy group, as opposed to 18% in the standard biopsy group. The percentage of clinically insignificant cancers was all was lower in the experimental group than in the standard biopsy group, and that was four percent versus twelve percent. So the conclusion is that we should use MRI with targeted and standard biopsy if the MRI suggests prostate cancer. That's non-inferior to just doing a standard biopsy for population-based screening. And we're also going to save resources, save anxiety uh, by not over-diagnosing what the article calls a clinically insignificant cancer. So I think this is really a very important trial. It's fantastic that you can do randomized trials to establish this. And I would like to see this coming in to practice. So Craig, have you got a question? I think in some centers in Australia, they are already doing this in the majority of patients. So they will do an MRI prior to a biopsy. So uh, I'm interested to know what years was this conducted, Eva? Has it taken a while for them to put it together? That's a very good question. It probably has. Let me flick back to the paper. But when you say people are already doing it, isn't that the problem that we wouldn't adopt a new therapy without thoroughly investigating it? But for new diagnostics, radiology or new surgical techniques, people just do it. Yeah, I agree. So, but I think I'm not sure why they've just embraced it, whether it's driven by the radiologists or the clinicians. But I think for several years, many of our urologists would be following this sort of workup in any case. So, it is great that we've got randomized evidence to support that. I think it's a real problem, probably more actually in surgery and diagnostics that people often jump to the new. You know, in medical oncology, we're often very much evidence-driven. So this, the trial population, uh, the invitation was from February 2018 through to March 2020. So don't, okay, so it's recent. Yeah. Well, the primary endpoint was the biopsy. It wasn't survival, of course. So uh, that's why you could get a, a quick answer. Yeah, I think a lot of centres, a lot of individual urologists have been doing this prior to 2018. 
Yeah. So again, it comes back to this issue. What is the financial incentive? Did they biopsy anyway? I'd like to know out of trial, if the MRI wasn't abnormal, did they still biopsy? So I think this paper's interesting, worthy of discussion in an MDT, really, for units to have policies. I'm still worried that there's a lack of uniformity of approach by different urologists. And, you know, there's huge financial incentives in all of this as well. Yep. Great paper. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, Craig. So, Craig, over to you. What's your main paper? So, I picked a paper that's it's not that long, but I think it might be practice changing. So, that's why I decided I'd go through that. So, it's immunotherapy in patients with locally advanced esophageal carcinoma, the ASCO treatment of locally advanced esophageal carcinoma guideline rapid recommendation update. So, ASCO regularly do guidelines, and in 2020, they published a guideline on the management of locally advanced esophageal cancer. And so, they decided uh, in August this year, August 2021, to update it because the Checkmate 577 trial was published. So, that was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, phase three randomized controlled trial comparing nivolumab to no treatment following neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy and surgery, patients with resectable esophageal cancer had residual disease after surgery, so meaning they had a YPT1 or YPTN1 in the resected specimen, and they were randomized to receive nivolumab versus no treatment. And um, it showed fairly significant difference Of course, there's a difference in toxicity. So patients, there was a rate of expected toxicity in the patients with nivolumab, but there was quite a big difference in the the outcome. So the hazard ratio was 0.69 for disease-free survival. And there was a suggestion that the benefit was bigger in the patients with a CPS score of at least five. That's something that we don't routinely do in Australia, we normally do the PDL one score, but in this paper they did CPS, and it, there was still a benefit of in all subgroups in the low CPS. It was sixteen point three months versus eleven point one months median disease free survival, and for the whole group, it was twenty nine months versus ten months. So that's quite a big difference. So it's a fairly selected subgroup, niche group of patients. Those who've had chemoradiotherapy, surgery, have some residual disease. You know they're going to do badly. What do we do? So here's what this ASCO is now recommending that we should give them nivolumab. And it is available in Australia. So befriend your BMS rep, but there is an access program for patients to access the drug So one of the reasons I picked this paper is because we have some GI experts on the call, well, at least one. So Hans, what do you think of the paper? I think it's it's a very interesting paper. It's for the first time that we see something like this in GI with adjuvant immune therapy that, that works. The data is not fully mature because, yeah, we still need overall survival data. But on the other hand, it's not a therapy in general, which is that toxic and actually in, in Belgium is now reimbursed since one week. 
so we can give it in the adjunct setting. The biggest difficulty, I think, is, okay, let's say that you relapse after this adjuvant or when you are treated with Nevo, what do you do in first line then afterwards? Uh, because as you know, there are many trials now. It's a first line immuno, second line immuno, and gastric, esophageal. So it makes it difficult. Also, what do you do with the patients that uh, get the FLOT regimen? Uh, because this is specifically for the ones that get chemoradio. But as you know, a lot of distal esophageal cancers or junction cancers get uh, FLOT perioperative. So that yeah, I think this, the story is not finished yet. But at the moment, as we have access, we will use it in patients with incomplete response uh, after chemoradiotherapy for esophageal cancer. Great. And he's stratifying them for... PDO one or CPS score, or is it just really all comers with residual disease? In this case, it's it's all comers, and that's a bit what is yeah a bit bizarre because in the trial it really really didn't look at this, but as you know, there are trials where PD one is a perfect marker. In some other trials, you need CPS five. In other trials, you need CPS ten. So I think PDL one doesn't seem to cover it all. But at the moment, we have to use the companion diagnostic that is related with a specific trial. Fantastic. So, Craig, I think there is some problem with this data. The original data uh, did not show significance in the low uh, group, only in all comers and in the high group, if you look on the forest plots. And we don't have overall survival data. I think it's a difficult situation you know, access programs are good, but they run out. We all know the motivation for companies doing access programs. We've all had access programs being pulled when if the drug doesn't get PBS listed. So I think this is the way of the future, but whether we use it right now, we also need to make sure we're getting our pathologists to do scoring in a standardized way and everybody using, having experience, because we know immunohistochemistry and scoring can be quite unreliable. So Craig, a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about conflicts of interest, particularly relating to editorials, but here you've got an ASCO document. So what do you know what the conflict of interest was of the authors? Well, I did my homework on this one now, Eva. I actually went and had a look. So you'll be very impressed. So one of the authors declared that he got research from BMS, but otherwise there was no other potential conflicts of interest, like an advisory role to the company. And none of the other authors had an interest to declare. So pretty clean. It is hard to stop the momentum and and things like this, isn't it? If ASCO put in the guidelines and the drugs made available and these patients do badly generally, I think it will be hard to, to change that. No, indeed. And it brings up the issue of the role of guidelines and whether they're evidence-based or eminence-based and how early do they come out. Again, the primary endpoint of the study, Craig, was? Overall survival, but they've only reported disease-free survival. So, Hans, you've gone into the world of gallbladder cancer for your main paper and some rare but now actionable mutations. Take it away. I picked a paper in cholangiocarcinoma with targeted therapy because, as you know, especially in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, we have now 
targets where we have drugs for, for example, IDH1. But in this case, I want to present a paper about infigratinib in metastatic cholangio with FGF receptor 2 fusions or rearrangements. This is a phase 2 study published in August 2021 in Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. The data was already known, but I just want to highlight again the results. So as you know, in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, we have fusions in FGF receptor 2 in about, let's say, 10 to 16% of patients. So it's one out of 10, one out of eight patients. Infigratinib is, of course, an inhibitor of FGF receptor. And in this study, it was important that the patients were previously treated with a gemcitabine-containing regimen. So in general, these are patients that are chemorefractory. The treatment is given daily for three weeks and then one week off. So what were the results? They included 122 patients, which is quite a lot. And the response rate was 23%, with a PFS around seven months. I want to highlight that the responses were more likely in second line than in third line or later. And this is something I keep on telling in every podcast, if I can. The earlier you give target therapy, the better. So this is also the case in this study. The main issue with FGF receptor inhibitors is the side effects. We have also a couple of trials here in Belgium and probably you have in Australia as well. And yeah, one of the side effects is a high phosphate level, so hyperphosphatemia. But this you can cover because you can give some kind of binders for this. But then they also complain of stomatitis, dry eyes, and some have also retinal complications. Uh, for example, pigment epithelial detachment. I recently had a patient that had this. Luckily, it it recovered. And this was really special because ophthalmologists told me, never seen this before, that it completely recovers after stop. So it seems in this case, although it's a case reversible, but still it's something we have to keep in mind. And the conclusion of the authors was that the activity was promising and toxicity was manageable. Okay, they call toxicity manageable, but I still think it's not the same as with other targeted agents that we see. I think you have to know these drugs really well. And this infigratinib has also already got approval by FDA. I just want to remind the listeners that there is already another one approved, FDA approved at least, and this is pemigatinib uh, based on the FIGHT trial. Uh, where we saw, let's, I think, I don't know by heart, but I think around 35% response rate and also a duration of response of seven months. So this is a bit in line with the, with the results of infigratinib. And now there's even a first-line study ongoing comparing gemcitabine plus cisplatinum with pemigatinib. And just to be complete, you have also erdafitinib, you have derazantinib, and you have still futibantinib. So there are still many more to come uh, in development. Now, is that French? What was that last one? Futibantinib. Futibantinib, yeah. <laughs> but this is the generic name, so probably the brand name will be completely different. Yeah, it'll be intracalangio or something. It'll something be- like this, yeah. So um, tell us a bit more. You mentioned intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. So is there a difference in the FGFR2 fusion, the rate of expression of that mutation in the intrahepatic versus the extrahepatic? Yes, that's really clear. So actually in the extrahepatic and especially in the gallbladder, you shouldn't look. You will not find them. 
So actually, I only look in the intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, and the same goes for these IDH1 mutations. Normally, in extrahepatic, like clot skin tumors, you will not find these uh, targeted mutations or fusions or whatever that can be treated. So I only look in the intrahepatic ones. And tell us how you go looking for the intrahepatic. Is it a, do you do an IHC for screening and then... No, we do a full NGS panel, and there, of course, you have to make sure that there is also some kind of fusion panel in there, because what I see is that a lot of these FGF receptor 2 fusions are not in all panels present. So if you don't look for them, you will not find them. So this is indeed is a very good question, because it's very important that you check with your local NGS provider whether all these fusions can be detected in their panels. Okay, so that's our practice tip. Of the week, if you've got an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, you need to remember, start thinking about the FGFR2. Now that there are drugs available, they're not going to be available in every country, but there's at least trials going to be around, presumably, to put people on these new targeted agents. Oh, I had a question. Just tell us again, what was the eye toxicity? Yeah, so it's some kind of, yeah, often it's dry eyes. Yeah, so we, we have sometimes we give some yeah, bit of liquid in the eyes or tears, uh, nat- natural tears, but still not always working. But what we are a bit afraid of is this pigment epithelial detachment, is the epithelium which comes loose in the retina. Retinal detachment. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the um, toxicity of interest um, there. And so presumably on the study, they're probably getting regular ophthalmological reviews mandated. So off study, would you would you do that as well? Or only- yeah, I think what you have to do in this case, and also some of these drugs give really a lot of nail toxicity. Often the nails fall off and it's a bit, but of course I, I treat them mainly in clinical trials, but it's a little bit of playing with the dose. Some people tolerate high doses perfectly and with some you have to even go to half of the dose to get it tolerated, or you have to stop and go uh, to let the nails heal, etc., or to get the eye problem solved. So it's, I think it's not as easy as with some other, let's say if we give Gleevec for a GIST tumor, I think everybody can manage it quite easily. It doesn't seem the same with, with this FGF receptor. And I think in the future, if you have five, six on the market, probably the side effects will determine which one we will use in the future with our patients. Thanks, Hans. So, Craig, have you got any short bites or, as you like to call them, quick bites? I do, Eva. I've got two in the neoadjuvant space. I know we've talked a lot about neoadjuvant with a whole lot of cancers. Seems to be the way we're moving. The first one is a phase two study of gemcitabine and split-dose cisplatin plus pembrolizumab as neoadjuvant therapy before radical cystectomy in patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer. So we know, interestingly, that pembrolizumab may be a treatment for patients who failed BCG in muscle-invasive bladder cancer, and we talked about that recently. But this is a paper using pembrolizumab in addition to standard gemcitabine cisplatin as a neoadjuvant treatment for patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer. So, you know, in the clinic, in the real world, this is a one treatment that we do now is giving neoadjuvant chemo to try and downstage tumors before either radical sectomy or radiotherapy or chemo radiotherapy. So this meant its primary endpoint for improved pathological downstaging and was generally safe. There was nothing unexpected. 
And there's now a global study of perioperative chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab or placebo that's ongoing. So just interesting in the neoadjuvant space. So, Craig, my question is, yes, what do you think the next study will be? So organ, are we heading towards organ preservation? Because that would be wonderful in bladder cancer. Yeah, that's right. Let's see if we can get all cancers with no surgery. (laughs) That would be great. That would be very interesting. And then the other one, again, neoadjuvant. This is from JAMA. It's actually the Ontolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. I often read that journal, not. But this is a systematic review and meta-analysis. Neoadjuvant PD-1, PD-1 inhibitors for resectable head and neck cancer. So it's interesting. There's actually been a, a number of studies in this space. There's actually been, there was 10 included in this review. Eight were neoadjuvant immunotherapy only and two were immunotherapy plus chemo and or radiotherapy. So major pathological response rates in the primary tumor sites from from studies of immunotherapy alone were 9.7%. So, you know, not a huge number, but they were seeing good response. It was tolerable and it will require, you know, further large studies to prove the disease-free survival or overall survival benefit. But I like a lot of cancers that are treatable or potentially resectable, I think there is going to be now a whole series of large studies in this neoadjuvant space. So it's just really for those who do see head and neck cancer patients, they might be interested in this review. The data has been quite disparate and difficult to synthesize, hasn't it? With uh, we've, we've discussed before on OJC some positive trials and then some negative trials. Yeah. And then my third one, maybe a little bit controversial. This is from our good friend, Bishal Gawali, who's been on the podcast before. Yay, Bish. So he and his co-authors, Benjamin Rome and Aaron Geschelheim, published in the BMJ, Regulatory and Clinical Consequences of Negative Confirmatory Trials of Accelerated Approval for Cancer Drugs, a Retrospective Observational Study. So what was interesting here is that the you know FDA often gives rapid approval, accelerated approval, they call it, for various new treatments. And then there can be post-approval, the trial, more trials come out and they can be negative. So in this re- review, they found, so this was a retrospective observational study uh, looking at FDA and National Comprehensive Cancer Network or NCCN reports looking at the cancer drugs that received accelerated approval from the FDA and then had a negative post-approval trial. There was 18 indications for 10 drugs that had received approval but failed to improve the primary endpoint in the post-approval trials. 11 or 61% were voluntary withdrawn by the manufacturer and one, which was bevacizumab for breast cancer, was revoked by the FDA. Six of those 11 withdrawals have occurred uh, in this year alone. And one very recently. Which was? A TISO in triple negative breast cancer. Well, there you go. But of the remaining six that remain on label, label and the NCN guidelines provide a high level of endorsement, category one for one and category two A for seven for accelerated approval drugs that had failed the post-approval trials, sometimes even after the approval has been withdrawn or revoked. 
So it was really just a heads up that we probably need to be a bit more systematic in withdrawing these indications if the studies come out as negative because there's a potential not only to cause financial harm to the system but also to cause real harm to patients in terms of side effects. Yes, absolutely. And I think you've had the FDA, you know, approval of the dementia drug. We we actually talked to Bish about that with very little evidence of benefit. So, you know, conflicts of interest, commercial imperatives up against giving our patients active therapies as soon as they can. That's where uh, you hope that there's much more overlap uh, than than uh, separation. Yeah. I'll declare a conflict of interest now. My sister, Jen Harrison in New York, works for far, works in the advertising industry and she was involved in the ads for that drug. So, you know, minor conflict, but big shout out to Jen who introduced us to Vogel New York. She rang Vogel's office and got hold of him and that's how we now have a link up with Vogel. So hands, I'm trying to be clever and make uh, a joke about the hands that feeds you quick bites. What are yours? Actually, I selected two this week. I think they're quite interesting. One is called pertuzumab and trastuzumab in HER2 positive metastatic biliary tract cancer. So I stay in the field of cholangiocarcinoma. This is a part of the My Pathway study. And as you know, the My Pathway study is a basket study, open label. And it evaluates FDA-approved therapies in non-indicated tumors. For example, also in colon, they already published data with pertuzumab, trastuzumab in HER2 expressing colon cancer. So this study is in HER2-positive biliary tract cancer where they gave pertuzumab and trastuzumab. And patients that had either HER2 amplification or overexpression on immuno, or they could have both, could be included. They are chemorefractory patients, also important to highlight, and treated with this dual anti-HER2 regimen. So what were the findings? Around 40 patients enrolled with a response rate one out of four, so 25%, which is, I think, promising in the chemorefractory situation. The overall survival is around 10 months with a PFS of four months. It seems not that much, but individually there were patients that were let's say, under control for more than 10 months. So I think individually it can mean something. So I think it's something we have to look at in the future to be able to use in this setting. The second one is also in the field of targeted agents, but it's in metastatic GIST patients, where they compare avapritinib with regorafenib. And it's a study in GCO, August 2021 an open-label phase three. And let me explain you again what avapritinib is, because not everybody knows it that is not in the field of GIST, can, GIST tumors. So avapritinib, it inhibits KIDS, of course, but also PDGF receptor alpha, which is very important. And it has activity against the PGF receptor alpha D842V mutant. And for those people treating GIST, know that this is the mutation that makes them resistant to Gleevec, for example. And also we know that avapritinib is sometimes active against kit mutations that are acquired under Gleevec or under Sutent. So in the phase one study, which was called a navigator, they saw this activity and that's why they did this study. And this study is called the Voyager study. And then they evaluated avapritinib with regorafenib. 
in third line or later. So the idea was avapritinib is active against the resistant PGF receptor, active against secondary kit mutations. So maybe as third line, it would be better than regorafenib. So what were the results? And I was really surprised. 476 patients were randomized. So this is almost 500 in a, such a rare indication. But to my surprise, was a no difference in PFS around four to six months. The OS was immature, so we don't have results from that. The response rate was higher for avapritinib, but this didn't translate in an increased PFS, and disease control rate was the same. So actually, in unselected late-line gist, there is no difference between avapritinib and regorafenib. But 13 patients, so one, three patients had PGF receptor D842A, so the resistant mutation. And there you see that the PFS was higher with avapritinib. So I think conclusion is, yeah, in third line, you can use either regorafenib or avapritinib if it's, of course, reimbursed or available. But specifically for the ones with this resistant PGF receptor mutation, avapritinib seems to be a better choice. Fantastic. Really good papers, Hans. And I actually had a patient recently with, with third-line GIST and he there's an access program in Australia. And so he bought the avapritinib. He's just started it. So fingers crossed he does well. Um, it's a really it starts getting quite complicated, doesn't it? Again, it shows how important the path is and all the biology and what the mutation is specifically. And I think there's a, an unmet need in these patients beyond the TKI, so there's more to do. In an ideal world, what you should do is actually take all the time biopsies or liquid if possible and check which secondary mutation is there. And then you should have some kind of companion diagnostic or some kind of test to tell you, okay, for this mutation, maybe avapritinib is better for the other mutation, maybe sutant is better for the other one. It's maybe regorafenib or whatever. And that's why I think repeated biopsies in this tumor is very important. Yeah. So you said it was specifically PDGFR beta uh, alpha, wasn't it? So does it have activity in the in the beta? Yeah, but the beta is not that common. It's mainly this one and especially the one in this D842A is very known in GIST because also they are not treated adjuvant with Gleevec if you have this mutation because it's completely resistant. Eva, what about you? What have you got for us? Yes, I've got a, uh, three short bites and a couple of amazing articles, actually, and a Twitter feed. So keep yourself seatbelts on. We've got a bit to go, as they say. So the first one's called Limited Evolution of the Actionable Metastatic Cancer Genome Under Therapeutic Pressure. This is actually something that I think is critically important. Published senior author was Emil Voist, who many of us know from ESMO, and published recently in Nature Medicine. So they analyzed whole genome sequencing of 250 biopsy pairs from 231 adult patients with a variety of metastatic cancers. The biopsy interval median was 6.4 months, and in that time, patients had received either one or multiple lines of treatment, mostly standard of care. They said standard of care biomarkers and biomarkers for clinical trial enrollment could be identified in 23% and 72% of biopsies. So, 23% had standard of care biomarkers and 72 had biomarkers that would allow clinical trial enrollment. 
Now, the concordance, the full concordance between the first and the second biopsy for the standard of care genomic biomarkers was 99%. For the biomarkers that helped patients get onto a clinical trial, there was 94% faithfulness or concordance in the follow-up biopsy. And interestingly, the second whole genome sequencing failed to identify any new biomarkers that could be used to further enroll that cohort into a clinical trial. So I still think we need more data on more biopsies and what happens under selection pressure. We still have a relatively small portfolio of standard of care biomarkers, and they're still pretty fundamental uh, genomic changes that I guess we're not surprised that they remain faithful throughout the journey of the cancer and they're not selected out. It's probably additional mutations or additional changes that happen under therapy that may be epigenetic as well as uh, uh, genetic. So I'm going to try and ask a clever question because I think I understood what you're saying, Eva, but so is this a su- surprise? I would have thought that you would select out more rapidly. Is this because the tumors start off as addicted to that pathway and so are they, you know, the majority get fundamentally knocked out by the targeted therapy or what's your explanation? I think the evolution of the cancer is accumulation of changes rather than changing a fundamental characteristic of the cancer that made it malignant in the first place. That That's how I would interpret it. So definitely this is not saying there are no further changes. This is saying that those standard of care biomarkers and even the clinical trial biomarker remain faithful. So resistance is happening through additional processes rather than reconfiguration of the original identified biomarker. So is it more evidence that we do need to re-biopsy people if they fail a treatment? Well, they make the opposite argument. They say don't re-biopsy. They didn't identify anything new in this cohort. It doesn't mean we don't need more biopsies to understand. But if if you've got a RAS mutant, you don't need to re-biopsy to see if it's still RAS mutant. So interesting. interesting. So what else have you got, Eva? Right. A paper from JAMA Surgery all-cause and cancer-specific death of older adults following surgery for cancer, Tyler R. Chesney. So what this paper addresses is this issue in an older patient of the competing risk of death. Do you subject a patient to a big operation for their cancer so they don't die of the cancer, they die of something else, or would the patient have died with the cancer? So this looked at older adults, 82,000 older adults who underwent surgery. They were all older than 70 years. And interestingly, 63.5% were female. We all know females outlive the males' (laughs) species. So at five years, the estimated cumulative incidence of cancer death exceeded non-cancer death. So it was 20.7% versus 16.5% for the whole group. So if you take this whole group of 82,000 people over 70, if you look at people 
who had their operation for cancer, they were still more likely to die of cancer than something else. However, there were some subspecial subgroups. Uh, so non-cancer deaths exceeded cancer deaths starting at three years after surgery for breast, prostate, and melanoma cancers for patients older than 85 years and for those with frailty. So the whole group altogether, yes, it's worth operating rather than saying the patient will die of something else. But I dare say we are probably doing surgery for breast and prostate cancer and perhaps melanoma in older patients when they would die not of their cancer. Really interesting. And it's it's like the, we talked about cardio-oncology in that special episode way back at the start. I can't remember the episode number, but we'll put a link on the page. But that was, um, and we've talked recently about once you get five years beyond the cancer, you're more likely to die of other causes than cancer and cardiovascular is number one. So it's something, you know, it's real, but it's really hard, isn't it, weighing up those competing risks? But it sounds like a great paper. And there'll be a lot of, I know there's a lot of people working in the geriatric oncology space who listen in. Big shout out to Christopher Steer and others. But there'll be people who will be really interested to click on the link and get more info, I reckon, Eva. Yeah, we did some work in neuroendocrine tumours because they have quite a different natural history and we looked at competing risk of death versus recurrence for patients with neuroendocrine tumours. And that's where, you know, when you have a, a cancer that can doesn't the median time to recurrence is between seven and 10 years. That's where you really have to look carefully in some of these older patients. And actually, our colleague Julie Halley from Vancouver just published on this in neuroendocrine tumors. It's a great paper looking at competing risk of death. Have you still got more? Yeah, I've, I've got a paper called The Supportive Care Needs of Regional and Remote Cancer Caregivers. It's an Australian paper published in Current Oncology by Anna Stiller. And I thought you might be interested, Craig, because uh, I think you've also published a paper that sounds very similar. Well, you've caught me on the hop, but yeah, I can, I can talk about that in a second. But why don't you tell me about this one? Because I wasn't aware of this one. Okay, so this was looking at 239 what are called informal cancer caregivers, so family and friends, not professional, from regional and remote Queensland, and they looked at the Comprehensive Needs Assessment Tool for Cancer Caregivers, CNATC. The most frequently endorsed needs were lodging near a hospital, information about the disease and information about tests and treatment. The most frequent unnet needs were treatment near a home. That was over a third of patients. Help with the economic burden, also a third of patients. And concerns about the person being cared for, a third of patients. Younger and female caregivers were more likely, significantly more likely to report unmet needs overall. And caregivers of breast cancer patients and older caregivers were significantly less likely to report unmet health and psychology needs. So that's interesting. I think we should do a systematic review on this. Well, well, in fact, that's been done. So this paper that 
it was been recently published. I was a co-author on psychosocial well-being and supportive care needs of cancer patients and survivors living in rural or regional areas. A systematic review from 2012 to 2021. So I just pulled that off Google Scholar. I knew it just been out in the last couple of months. So Shannon Vandenkrook was the first author. Kate Gunn's the senior author. It was written on behalf of COSA. This includes Phyllis Buto as one of the authors. Uh, Kate White, Ian Olver, Sabe, Rob, big shout out to them. So the same group published a paper in 2012, and then this was an update from papers from 2010 to 2021. So interestingly, in this systematic review, we didn't actually find any fundamental difference in needs between urban and regional people, apart from the specific issues about rurality, such as travel finances and accessing care. So, but the other needs, like other psychosocial needs, like social, emotioning, functioning, physical functioning, etc., was there was no no difference in need. So, interesting paper and again people can click on the links. It's a good reference if you're working in regional care or health service improvement in cancer to see the, you know, all of the papers set out there in the one so I can quiz you about your paper now. So does that mean essentially people are the same, they're just influenced, it's sort of like genetics versus environment. So they have the same needs whether you're in the city or the country apart from the things that are different in the country like distance. They're not exactly. a different group of people. It says distance and access, and that has a financial implication, needing to take time off work, and et cetera, to travel. But the other psychosocial needs were no different. When that kind of makes sense, I guess, doesn't it? That Yeah, I just guess what percentage of, say, Indigenous patients, because they may have quite different needs. We know they do from non-Indigenous patients, but they live both rurally and urban. So. Was that addressed at all? You know, that wasn't part of the sort of systematic review about Indigenous issues, but I'm sure we've had an episode of the podcast about Indigenous issues and I'm sure there are some unique issues there, no doubt. That would be where the population is may have fundamental differences rather than just the location. Yeah, and I think yeah. there's, you know, there'll be cultural differences and there's fundamental issues about how the system copes or doesn't take into account those cultural needs. And the extra impact could be socioeconomic impact as well as cultural that exacerbates some of the needs. Great. So do you want to hear my amazing article of the week? Yes, please. All right. Well, this is an absolute classic. It was published in Volume 106 in the Journal of Applied Psychology this year, and it's called The Fatiguing Effects of Camera Use in Virtual Meetings, a Within-Person Field Experiment. This is so topical. So there is this new term, it might be word of the year, called Zoom Fatigue. It's defined as a feeling of being drained and lacking energy following a day of virtual meetings. Now, what this group wanted to see is how much of this fatigue comes from having the camera on as opposed to doing a meeting with a camera off. So they used a four-week within-person experience sampling field experiment. So they had 103 employees in a healthcare firm 
they had 1,400 daily observations and the employees had to keep their camera either on during all virtual meetings and then off and they did two weeks of each. So interesting results. On average, participants spent 3.06 hours in 4.88 virtual meetings and the results suggested that the use of the camera is fatiguing. People felt more fatigued when the camera was on and that was in not related to the amount of time or the number of meetings it was relating to whether the camera was on or off. And they said fatigue itself is problematic for engagement in a meeting. And they said women and newer employees were more fatigued by the use of camera, perhaps due to self-presentation costs during calls where the camera was on. So how good is that evidence? Wow. I've got a um, question. Was it stratified to multitasking such as online shopping, which I have been known to do in Zoom meetings. When you remember it's someone's birthday or something, you think, oh, God. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because now you, you're you very conscious of knowing that somebody with their camera on is doing something completely different. You can see their eyes going up and down as they're looking at another screen or looking at different things. And it's a little bit disconcerting, isn't it? So I think we do get fatigued and it also has this effect of uh, not feeling valued if the person is uh, multitasking. Fantastic. Have you got a Twitter account of the week? I do. I've got a a ser- sort of a serious one, but I thought it'd be great for our audience. So Jessica Rodriguez, so at Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-S-J-M-6, and she tweets about academic writing and her best tips for academic writing and all the responses she's had. So I think it's really worth uh, having a look at that. Twitter feed, not as funny as Glaucom Fecken, but very useful. Yeah, no, it was good. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, goodbye, Eva. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye, Eva. Bye, Craig. Thanks. See you, Hans. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.